0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. It's good to see some smiles in the audience. Uh, so we've been, Mark has been, I've been teaching about emptiness for some weeks now. I'm moving through this book by Guy Armstrong, which you don't have to read if you don't want to. You don't have to know what that means. <laughs> um, so I wanted to maybe, um, I'll spread some thoughts in about emptiness and compassion um, as we go along in, through this talk. But over the past however long, I've really been noticing like in the people that I've been talking to and friends in my community and others, just how difficult it can be, especially in winter months in Minnesota. And so I wanted to um, offer something that might help us learn to be with difficulty and you don't have to be depressed to get something out of this talk (laughs) we all have difficulty in our lives and we'll experience difficult times for one reason or another Um, many many of them so hopefully it will be relatable to anybody yeah and just to name some of the difficulties you know can just be so simple like day-to-day crankiness for one reason or another or um, things not going our way at work or it can be you know more significant experiences like dealing with the loss of a loved one or a relationship or a dream that we've had for ourselves or our children could be um, emotional pain um, sadness or anger anxiety, fear, could be any of those things related to our own direct experience with our families and friends, could just be also being awake in the world at this time, um, feeling any emotion at any time about the way things are going in our own society, our communities here in Minneapolis, Minnesota, but also about around the world. And this practice is about, this practice that we do, this mindfulness practice, is really about learning to be with things as they are. Learning to be with the present moment's experience. And so we have to really learn how to be with difficulty as part of the range of human experience. We will all touch joys and sorrows, pain and loss in our lifetime. So learning to be with the way things are now has to include being with the way difficult things are for us. And not only learning to be with, but learning to work with. We can't expect that when we start a meditation practice or take up mindfulness practice that things that were unpleasant will suddenly become pleasant or that difficulties will be no more and we'll just be above it all, right? That's not true. Um, in fact, sometimes, as many of us have seen, that as we begin practicing, we become more sensitive. right? And with sensitivity, it seems like there's more of something. It's not necessarily that there's more of something. It's just that we feel it. right? So we need to learn some tools to be able to work with that so that we can continue to stay awake. But even though we can't expect um, unpleasantness to become pleasantness, which wouldn't that be nice but we can't expect that but what so what can we expect well we can expect that with our practice and with an ability to stay awake that our habits that were unskillful we can be replaced with habits that are more skillful and more useful so the habits of reactivity might actually cease and there might be a new habit in place the mind is cultivating a new habit on how to be with how to care how to be compassionate so in the absence of all that reactivity then there's a natural capacity that's that's underneath all of that so in some moments I notice this with my partner and with my friends like one thing happens and whoever however it starts like there's a um, triggering response right so there's fear or anger or something, or snapping at, and then the other person snaps back, right? I do that. Sometimes I'm the snapper, sometimes I'm the snapper-backer. <laughs> Whatever that is. But in some moments, um, even if they're fleeting, there's a, <laughs> when I'm snapped at, there's like an ability to be like, oh, sweetie, that must be hard for you to be angry like that. It doesn't maybe all flow out like that, but, <laughs> but there is an ability to kind of care about the pain that someone else is going through, right? And not to have to react to it. But in that moment, then there can be a little bit of um, think time. Like, how do I want to respond instead of why am I just, instead of just acting out of this habitual reactivity, right? So the habitual reactivity of snapping back versus a little bit of think time to be like, I love this person. What I want to say in this moment, how can I respond so that it won't hurt her anymore or him anymore? So learning to be with, but how how do we do that, right? This is a question. How do we transform our habits of mind into habits that are skillful and useful and not harmful? And really, you know, the basic practice is to just cultivate wise attention. And what does that mean? It just means that to show up, to be willing to be here in this moment right now. And it means to do that as often as we can So we're cultivating continuous awareness, like being, what's it like to be alive now? Well, how about now? Well, how about now? And if we do this a lot of times throughout our day, then we get better and better at that. The mind gets better and better of doing that on its own. Like, it wants to be awake. So this cultivation of wise attention is really at the heart of being with and working with difficulty. And so, stabilizing the mind is important. We kind of did that at the beginning of the sit by focusing on the body, noticing what it's like to have a body, and then noticing, like, you know, as the mind gets a little more stable, as the attention gets a little more stable, also noticing how the mind is interact, how the mind is conditioning the body, and the body is conditioning the mind, Right. And that begins with this, um, having a little bit of confidence that that might work, right? I remember um, a long time ago, my one of my teachers, Kamala Masters. I was, she was asking me a question about something, and it, like slowly, as we were talking, like the whole seemed like we were talking about five or six different teachings, and she was like, "Oh yeah, sweetie, like you pull one thread of the Dharma, and the whole thing comes with." <laughs> and I was just, as I was preparing this talk, and again, as I was just saying what I was saying, I was remembering, like, it, for whatever reason, no matter what I'm saying, I always seem to go back to the five spiritual faculties these days. It's really has been so um, impactful for me in my life just to kind of see the five spiritual facu- faculties at work, and I'll just name them, and they're totally accessible, which is probably why I like them so well. Um, It's like stabilizing the mind begins with sitting down and having some confidence that this might work, that there might be something to this practice of mindfulness. And it doesn't have to be like a big kind of faith. It could just be a little bit of like, let's check it out. I have enough confidence to at least check it out, to see if opening to this, whatever this is, this difficulty of the moment, if there might be something to that, if if that might yield some positive results. And then once there's a little confidence, then there's a natural inclination to apply a little bit of effort. And it doesn't mean like, you know, something huge again. It can just be like closing the eyes and seeing if I can be aware right now. That's it. So applying a little bit of effort. And with a little bit of effort, it gets easier to be with. It gets easier to cultivate wise attention, right? It's a habit that's being established. So one moment of strength leads to more and more moments of greater strength. And then before we know it, there's a stability of mind. And now the mind can really meet with more and more subtlety the depth of our experience. And that's what we might call concentration, but we don't have to call it concentration. We could just call it like stability. And as the mind is more stable with continuity, then natural wisdom and compassion arise it's like the mind that is unencumbered by greed hatred ill will dilute confusion fear anxiety worry the mind is, that is unencumbered by all of that is naturally compassionate it's that's what's left Sayadaw Utejaniya, another, he's a Burmese monk. He says that you're only really meditating when there's an absence of greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind. And when I read that, I was like, (laughs) so all these years I've not been doing it? (laughs) But that doesn't mean that there's no hope. The ant, it just means, it just like points to that the antidote to, um, having a mind that is unencumbered, like I just said, with greed, anger, and delusion is by, is through wise attention, right? And those defilements, we might call them, greed, hatred, whatever, those obstacles to, to wise attention, those, um, Things that lead to our own reactivity of the mind, the ickiness, the ugliness of the mind. (laughs) Those are really fleeting too, and they only drop in the mind when the mind is unaware. So when the mind is cultivating awareness, when it's steadily continuous, then they hardly they don't there's no room for them. The mind is then acting out its natural state which is compassionate and kind. Right. Underneath it all that's what's there. A few years ago I was um, I've been a social worker. I'm mostly working in schools for 15 years or so and a few years ago, I was working at the school in North Minneapolis. And I was really behind the mission of the school. And the director, the principal, I knew very well. I'd worked with many years in the past. And um, they just went through so many swift and significant changes in a short amount of time that it just couldn't keep up. The school couldn't, the capacity of the professionals, and it just wasn't at, it just wasn't up to keeping up with all of the changes that were happening and the school closed mid-year abruptly and it was so painful uh, so many moments were so painful and I remember this um, one moment I was on the second floor um, looking out the window at the community and there was such like the, my heart was just breaking and the tears were flowing Um, But what I really noticed that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, like, there wasn't fear in the mind at that moment. There wasn't a lot of um, self-referential thinking. So I wasn't worried about, like, my livelihood or whether or not I was going to get paid or um, find another job. Or it wasn't, like, self-serving or self-centered thoughts. It was more just, like, in in a moment and not with even a lot of thinking. But there was an understanding that this had come to pass over a long period of time, a lot of decisions that were made, a lot of people who were well-intentioned but were maybe um, not always able to make the best decisions. Sometimes, you know, imperfect human beings just acting out you know, what they had to work with and at times it was ignorant and not um, full (coughs) in in our understanding. So, and it wasn't like blame, but just like understanding like, oh, this is the truth of the way things are right now. And so what's left? If I can surrender to this, this unfortunate, devastating event for this community and the kids and the school, like what was left was just the heart that was breaking over it all, right? It was, that is compassion. It's the expression of compassion. The heart that can care about suffering the heart that can see it and fully care about it—that's all that was there. And so I just stood there in the window and cried for a moment. Like, and there was a little bit of gratitude beneath that too. That you know, this like confidence—like this is kind of great that the heart can feel this, and I don't want to not do this. That's this is why I'm practicing, even though it hurts. So it's not like, um, like I said in the beginning, it's not like. We won't have any more pain if we take up this practice. It's just that there is a capacity of the heart to meet it and will continue to grow over time. I was preparing for this, and I read a little article last night, and in it the author said that despair happens when you fight sadness. Compassion is what happens when you don't. So in these difficult times, like when we we don't want to get in the habit of pushing away what's here, not feeling, pretending like this doesn't exist or this doesn't hurt, we want to be able to lean into it and to really get to know it as best we can. When something is familiar to us, it becomes less scary. Without compassion we might think that disconnecting or not feeling is the way. This is why we talk about or why it's talked about like two wings of the Dharma. It's necessary to understand emptiness or um, investigation we might say or wisdom or the wisdom that kind of sees things as they are like thoughts as thoughts and sound as sound and taste as taste and body sensations as body sensations, and doesn't get confused that that's all that's happening in a moment. You know, doesn't get confused by the story that's on top about, this is my body and it really hurts, or this is happening to me and it's so painful, or whatever it is. But that's not the end of the story. So emptiness is is that understanding, but it also brings with it the necessary understanding of compassion and kindness. Because it's not only that, right? It is that, it is the raw experience, but this ability to care is is what's required. Without, without an ability to care, then emptiness is dis, just leads us to be disconnected, and to be aloof, and to be like, oh yeah, it's just sound. Or those are just thoughts about your life that you care about, but we don't need to tend to that. It's just a thought, right? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense as relative, on this relative level as human beings. So we need this like ability, we need emptiness to carry with it compassion, this ability to really lean in and see each other, to feel the depth of our experience, and to meet that with as much kindness, softness as possible. The other, the other side of that is that without compassion or without, without an understanding of emptiness, compassion can be, become overly emotional, right? Like if I would have stood in front of the window looking out over the community and just falling apart, like, oh, I can't do this, like that would have been too much. And I would have been of no use to myself or to my colleagues or to the kids or the parents in the school. And with moment-to-moment awareness, with this continuity and stability that develops over time, we can begin to see patterns in the mind, patterns in the heart, in our way of living that are deeply ingrained. And this is noticing the mind, right? This is noticing that the mind, what the mind is doing. When we start to see the patterns of our relationship to experience, we begin to see the mind itself. I was teaching MBSR on Thursday night and there was a student in class who was um, kind of in love with <laughs> practice in this one moment. He was talking about it with such like brightness in his face. He, during a sitting period, was noticing knee pain, just simple knee pain, right? And how intense it was and there was like, it was so unbearable to him. And then the mind got distracted and went somewhere else and then he, to look for the knee pain, it was so subtle. He was like, "What?" you know, just got curious about what was happening in that moment and realized that the mind was engaged in the knee pain. It wasn't just the sensations in the knee that were being noticed, but it was the hating it or this is unbearable, like that on top of the knee pain made it so hard. So that pattern of like hating or not wanting or whatever it is for us, you know, we all have our own various patterns that we can notice. And noticing and often giving voice to those patterns with trusted others is a way to, for those patterns to not have so much power over us. We don't have to be afraid of them anymore. We can just know that fear, worry, anxiety, anger, even moments of hopelessness, those are just part of this human experience. And we're normal just like everybody else, we have them and we're not alone in that. It's good to notice, like we don't wanna demonize stories. As human beings, like we use stories, right? And we have to be able to use our practice to see the mind, to see the patterns, to see the stories that are um, in our mind a lot and challenge them when it feels useful, right? So it doesn't help me to work this story over and over. I'm not good enough. I don't belong here. What if everybody hates me? You know, that isn't a useful story, but I can't do anything about it unless I notice it. So noticing the mind and its patterns also includes noticing thought, right? attending to the activity of the mind so once i notice that those are the stories that are going through my mind then i can ask like sweetie is this a useful story now is this going to do you any good now and if the answer is no then i can choose to put it down i can say not now doesn't mean that i don't care about you i see you've been here a long time we've been together a long time (laughs) we know each other intimately i will address you later but for now (laughs) I'm going to see if this new story might work a little bit better. Might help me out a little bit more, like the story of you are going to be fine. You are really going to survive this. We have been here before, <laughs> and we know that you can survive this. So I want to offer some. Uh, I want to offer some tools, like what we can do when the stories become intense or unrelenting. Is that the right word? They keep coming and coming. And we need often a pocket full of skillful means. So the first thing that we want to do is see if we can be with the difficulty of this moment. And sometimes if it's not possible, if the mind is flooded, if it's just you know the story is unrelenting and it doesn't seem too hard, then we need to be able to apply a skillful means to help pave the ground for a future opening, right? To work with what is here. I learned this on retreat not long ago, last summer actually. There was, for whatever reason, a lot of fear in the mind um, through a period of time. And so I was really trying on as many skillful means as possible just to keep practicing, right? In some moments, the fear was so intense that it really... It was overpowering i could just barely like oh this is fear it feels like this in the body and then before i'd know it it would just take me over and i was scared right and when i was scared i was no longer aware of the fear and so i had to do something to help the mind come back into balance so i did a whole lot of some things i'm going to go through some of them with you in hopes that it might help you at a time or two <clears throat> One of the, the things I did and I do often is I imagine my teachers and mentors, some of you are in this room, with really messed up minds. <laughs> <laughs> I do, because it makes me feel like, oh, I know that you've been down this road before, just like I have, and it helps me not feel so alone. And I even go like, oh, and her teacher was this person oh yeah, and they had a really messed up mind too. And her teacher all the way back, and the Buddha had a messed up mind, right? Like these this, these flavors of the mind, these defilements or um, visitors to the mind are not personal. They're not there just for me. And really helping me stay connected with the the history of people that have been through difficulty in their lives makes it feel a little more manageable to me. And I often will just, um, when, the mo- when the mind is, has more balance in it, I will um, just watch teachers or uh, my spiritual friends and community like talk about, move through. Sometimes it's physically, like watch them just sit really still and imagine like, oh yeah, there are torments to your mind too. And, but you're handling it really well. Maybe I can do that. I try to notice the Buddha in different forms. So notice the Buddha, the mind that can be awake. The mind, the Buddha is just a, we often talk about the Buddha as this historical person, but it really just refers to the mind that can be awake to the way things are. Right And people, human beings, are awake to the way things are in amazing ways all around me all the time. So I watch people in their resiliency kind of be awake to the way things are and meet it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's it. That is the quality that I'm cultivating in my mind. And it is possible for me to meet this thing that is relatively small, especially when people are meeting um, extremely significant events and experiences in their mind. At the beginning of this program we chanted, I almost forgot to chant, but we did chant. And sometimes that's a really nice way to bring some balance back to the mind. It's a way to remember the teachings, um, picking up any of the chants in the chant book, but also not just chant song, right? There was a period of time where I felt just like very serious and kind of not able on a day-to-day basis to have some balance of like happiness and other emotional expression and so i decided i wasn't going to listen to the news and instead every time i was in the car i was listening to two different cds i was listening to ellis was a local singer songwriter because she's light and makes me feel a little free and i was listening to aretha franklin because she makes me (laughs) feel strong So I was like going back and forth. And I was just noticing the effect that that had on my mind just to take up a a skillful strategy like that. So simple, we could do that at any time. What else, maybe one or two more things. Yeah. Maybe this just this one, and I'll, maybe I'll end with this. Well, maybe two more things. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's really something in in that, what I said before about not fighting whatever's here, being willing to surrender to the way things are. and it's, And that can especially come when we feel like we're at the end of our rope, like I can't take this anymore, whatever this is this knee pain, the sadness, this difficulty in my life. And so there's nothing left to do. So sometimes I'll just reflect on, well, like, is there anything left to do? Like, what have I tried? Tried denial, that didn't work. Tried pretending, that didn't work. Tried all these strategies, kind of worked a little bit. So what happens if I just surrender? Like the surrendering to the way things are, but also surrendering to, I don't always know what to do. And just like in that moment, the heart just feels a little more tender like a little softer, a little more capacity. I've probably read this before, I know I have, but I love it, so I'm gonna read it again. This is from Noah Levine's book, The Heart of the Revolution. It's actually just in the foreword um, from Jack Kornfield. He says, wherever you are, your heart can be free. You too can free your heart. You need not be trapped by your past. Individually and collectively, our hearts can be released from the sufferings of our history. I have seen this over and over again on retreats as meditators honorably face the pain of their history with courage, healing, compassion, and forgiveness, and learn to move on. I have seen this in prisons and hospices and AA meetings, and among former victims and former combatants for peace in countries around the world. The sufferings of our families and community and the world are built on lies. Lies of fear and addiction, of racism and trauma and hate. But they are not the end of the story. There is also a release from these lies. When my teacher, Maha Gosananda, whose whole family was killed in the Cambodian genocide, gave teachings to 25,000 traumatized survivors in their refugee camp, I mean, just take that in. When my teacher, Maha Gosananda, whose whole family was killed in the Cambodian genocide, his whole family, gave teachings to 25,000 traumatized survivors in their refugee camp, I wondered what he could possibly say to those who had lost so much. He took his seat, and with dignity and with dignity chanted the Buddha's words over and over, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. Soon all 25,000 refugees were chanting with him, faces covered with tears, giving voice to a truth even greater than their sorrows. Forgiveness, compassion, and freedom to live your own life are available to, to you. These are your birthright these are your birthright. There's something so beautiful about that to me, about just surrendering to the way things are, that allows others to do the same thing, right? It's modeling how to be with the most difficult of experiences. And when you don't know what to do, like what do you do? If I've gone through all of the things that I've done that haven't worked or have worked just a little, like why not try surrendering to like, this is it, sweetie. And this is what I know. Not just this is it, but this is what I know. Like I know that hatred does not, not cease by hatred. I'm not going to do that. Which is would bring me to the last thing that I might offer is reflecting on what, what is worthy of taking refuge in. Like, what is worthy of taking refuge in? Is it this unskillful response or this coping strategy that doesn't really work? Like, is it worth taking refuge in that? Or is it maybe worth trying taking refuge in, like, the possibility of the heart to be awake in this moment, to really feel, to be sensitive to all the pain and sorrows that are alive right here? And is it possible to take refuge in... Our community, each other, our teachers, the whole lineage of practitioners. Man, we, are, we did not start here. More than 2,600 years people have been sitting with the muck of their mind. That's a long history. That's a lot of resiliency, right? And there's a lot of resiliency right here in our community. And even if you've been practicing for five minutes or 5,000 years, you belong here on this path. You have, it is your birthright. and I'm saying that for as much for me as I am for you because I want to believe that too and I want to be able to rely on you when things are hard for me and I want you to be able to rely on me too and just trust that we'll walk through the muck together in community as imperfect as we are because <laughs> we will definitely mess up. It's Probably just a few minutes left for questions if you have them, I'd love to hear from you.
1: Hi, Shelley. Um, somewhere, I'm Ellen, and somewhere in about the middle of your talk, you gave a short phrase, something that you had read last night. Could you repeat that, please? Maybe.
0: <laughs> Despair happens when you fight sadness. Compassion is what happens when you don't. Is that it?
1: It's beautiful. I, I love it, and um, so often I'm noticing when my mind is rattled, I'm irritated by everything. I just return to loving kindness practice, and it it does shift. I don't know that I see um, a cause and effect or necessarily... Um, oh, I'm cured now or I get the total (laughs) resolve of whatever I'm frustrated with. But it lifts me to a point where I walk further and I see more and more or I accept more and more or I understand a little bit more. And that's the path. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
0: Thank you. Go here and then right there.
2: Thanks for that wonderful talk, Shelley. um, That was the same quote that I was going to ask about because the word "fight" just—I know it was despair and sadness—but the word "fight" just wouldn't come back. So,
0: oh man, (laughs) find it again.
2: (laughs) And uh, I've really struggled with this idea that if I get close to the suffering in the world, I suffer, and uh, and so I've been resisting getting close and I finally started to realize that uh, so in a way that's fighting the despair is by pushing it a- a- away and uh, I found that it helps me to get closer to the sadness in the world and the suffering in the world and when I start to feel that suffering myself just to recognize this is suffering it's like doing the first noble truth. And by recognizing that as the first noble truth, I realized, oh, I am not the first noble truth. It is, this is just suffering. I'm not in this. And by being able to take myself out of it, I may not have the uh, poignant response that you had on the second floor of that, that school, seeing that suffering, but at least I'm able to get myself out of it and, and recognize that that th- this is something that I can stay close to without, without having to suffer.
1: Thank you for your talk. Um, I was just curious when you're um, when you're talking about accepting, you know, the intensity of whatever it is you're dealing with. How can you? How does one accept that and also not try to kind of get lost in the overwhelming nature of that experience?
0: Yeah, it's, that's that's it, right? I mean, that's the trick is to accept it. I mean, the way that I do that is just by cultivating. It's not just by cultivating, because I'm using all those skillful means that I talked about, and I could have you know, written 10 pages of that alone, all the skillful means. So willing, being willing to be creative and do whatever it's going to take for the mind to, to have some balance. In that moment where there's a lot of intensity, sometimes it's not possible just to be with it. And so then I'm going to, like, wash the dishes or take a shower or walk the dog or look at the sun. I mean, just for a moment and see if I can notice that this intensity is impermanent also, right? It may seem like this has been here forever and it's never going to leave, whatever this hopelessness or despair in the mind. But if I'm really, I know from experience that that's not true, that everything waxes and wanes, comes and goes, um, fluctuates in intensity, right? Right? So just by looking at the sun, or washing dishes for a moment, or taking a shower, it it intercepts that,
1: and and gives me a little faith. I'm Ingrid. I want to thank you for being so open. I love your talks because you're not afraid to be personal and reveal your own struggles, and mm-hmm. the, to know that you were paralyzed by fear at a retreat. I mean, that's just. That's just, that's like music. So thank you. <laughs>
0: yeah, you can imagine me with my messed up mind. <laughs> um, further about surrendering to um, a situation, you know, if you're in a situation that you're
1: unhappy with, how do you know when to surrender to it and when to change the situation?
0: Yeah, that's another great question. So um, this isn't a passive path. We're not just supposed to be doormats and let bad things happen and just be like, oh, yeah, it's just the way it is. It's not what we do. So we have to be, like, active in our engagement, right? So knowing knowing when to take up an action, when to leave a situation, um, is all really is good, right? And if that response can come out of a heart that cares, like if you can incline, if I can, if we can, incline our hearts and our minds to like oh I really care about myself and therefore I'm going to do this right this is a smart response for me because I care about my life and this makes a lot of sense. I remember a story again Kamala um, told I think she was telling a story you probably remember this better than me Patrice but um, Sharon Salzberg was telling her a story about being um, in India on a gondola or something, a rickshaw probably, and right, not a gondola, sorry. Um, and somebody tried to steal her bag, and she was telling the story to her teacher, Menindra. and Menindra said, um, you should have beaten him with your bag, or something like that. And, oh, umbrella, right, see, I told you she would remember better than me. She's heard it for a few more, a lot more often than I have but. And she, Sharon was sort of, like, shocked by that response, her teacher saying you should beat another person, right? <laughs> but he was saying, like, no, out of compassion for you because it's not good for you to let that happen and out of compassion for him because it's not good for him to do that, right? So, like, can, I mean, that's kind of a wild thought for me to be able to beat someone out of compassion <laughs> with an umbrella or anything. But it does, like, that a teacher said that it does make me, like question and really um, fantasize about the possibilities like how far does this compassion thing reach right and how many situations might just might I be able to conjure up some compassion when I need it right so which then just gives me a little more confidence to go back to the moment-to-moment noticing and investigating those patterns because if those patterns are disrupted if the unhealthy patterns are disrupted and replaced by healthy patterns, then it's really possible to respond from compassion, right? And that's what I want.
1: Can you add something? Yes. Go Ellen. That compassion. Compassion can, like, striking somebody. Was it a compassion strike to wake somebody up or was it out of anger and vengeance? Yeah. You know, there's a difference in the quality. Totally. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that is what I'm talking okay. about.
0: That like unskillful pattern of reacting out of anger and fear mm-hmm. or the um, skillful pattern of being able to conjure up some compassion and respond out of that. Yeah. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity.